Welcome, welcome. This is Morgan Davey of Diceratops. This is another Diceratops episode where I chat to people from Aotearoa, New Zealand, doing exciting stuff in the world of Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games. Today I am chatting with Dale Elvey, a quiet legend of the NZRPG scene. He's an any-winning game designer. He's making really innovative games. More people should know about them, I think. Almost all of them have free versions available, so you can pick one and be playing it today free of charge. In Diceratops news, thanks for the kind words about the D&D Live Dial M for Minotaur show shared over the last couple episodes of the podcast. If you haven't caught it yet, well, we're now in November, which is the perfect time. I think it was a very fun show. You'll enjoy listening. Our next live show is later this month, Saturday, November 28th at Bats Theatre in Wellington. It's Pour Some Centaur on Me. Tickets are on sale now. Ahead for the podcast is another Diceratox episode with a really exciting Kiwi game designer who's worked on some of the biggest RPGs in the world. Don't miss it. After that, we'll roll into our new D&D saga featuring two fan-fave characters from the live shows, Jack Wick Gambleson and Mascara Stormfire. We've got the first few episodes recorded already. It's shaping up a very exciting adventure. And finally, the Kiwi RPG podcast and stream community has been holding these big crossover events. And Jared Baker from Diceratops, he was in one this weekend past. We'll share the YouTube link when that drops. There's more to come. Right, let's get into it. My chat with Dale Elvey of Imaginary Empire. Okay, welcome to Dicera Talks with Morgan Davey, and I am talking today with Dale Elvey. Dale is a uh, old friend of mine and also a, a exciting figure in the Wellington and New Zealand role-playing scene. Dale uh, has, well, we'll talk about a bunch of interesting stuff that Dale's done, including his um, experiences running uh, games at conventions, of which he became a bit of a bit of a master. And I think out of those experiences came a whole bunch of really interesting and um, unique role-playing games, uh, the most recent of which has just launched on the scene, and it's called Soaring Lions. So we'll talk about that. Dale, hello, how are you? Kia ora. Uh, I am good. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you for inviting me to talk about games and stuff. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's always, it's always a pleasure to talk games with you, but this is, this is the first time that we have done it with uh, cameras and recording equipment. But um, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll manage to make it suitable for people who aren't us to listen to, as opposed to going down some of the, the many side alleys that we have explored in the, our past conversations. <laughs> so first of all, let's, let's treat you as a pitch man. Tell us about Soaring Lions. What is it? What's the elevator pitch of this game? Absolutely. So Soaring Lions is about professional wrestling, which is about theatre and drama. Uh, big heroes, big villains, big storylines. Uh, and so the idea of, uh, there, there are a number of wrestling games out there, and uh, many, many of them are very fine games. Um, this particular game is about making it as simple as possible to get right into it, get straight at it. And um, it's really designed to emulate that kind of dynamic where the characters on a, in a wrestling TV show or, you know, a wrestling show are competing uh, with each other, not just in the ring where they're wrestling, but they're also competing with each other for the interest of the audience. So they're competing for their storylines to be ascendant. And so the way the game works very simply is that uh, characters uh, are competing on and off the inside and outside of the ring to um, uh, capture the interest of the audience, but also to, to wrestle and defeat their opponents in the ring. And it's a, uh, designed to be a one-session game, single-session game, as simple as possible. Um, but you can string those sessions together into what I call the big series, uh, which is, uh, allows the characters to grow and expand a little and brings in some other interesting elements. Cool. 
so the attitude that it takes towards towards wrestling it's it's kind of presenting it um what what's the word within within the kayfabe of wrestling so there's there's no acknowledgement that of of any kind of rigging or staging behind the scenes stuff it's all as the audience might experience it is that right that's right so you're not playing a character playing a character you're just simply playing a character yeah uh yeah so it's all about uh as, as though it was real um albeit clearly not <laughs> Awesome. So um, I haven't had a chance to play Soaring Lines yet, but I've I've read through it, and um, I I particularly loved the legend creation sheet where you've you've come up with a handy table that players can use to quickly generate the distinctive look and name etc of their of their wrestler. Was that something that you sat down and came up with, or did you get people to contribute to that? Because there's some great great stuff on there. Uh, well, the whole thing came out of playtesting, so there are definitely contributors uh, I can credit um, in terms of the playtest group. But yeah, no, the idea is that not everyone is necessarily going to have that um, stuff that ready to go and when they sit down to make their character. So if we can lift the load, um, as we'll talk about perhaps, a lot of the, my idea about what con games and simple one-shot games should be is to, to provide as much support for people as possible. So if they're not feeling in it, you know, they're not in the mood right away, you, they can ease into it. They don't have to put too much uh, mental effort in up front. They can just kind of go with the flow to start with until they get that, a feel for what's going on at the table. Yeah, well, it actually looked to me like it, it, would, it would be a really good introductory game for someone who's not so familiar with role-playing games because it's got a very clear structure. Um, every, every step that you take within your turn is, is basically choosing a move from a list of options and then the rules are very clear about you do this move and you roll the dice and that determines if you can follow up with another move etc so um like there's a very clear bedding to lie on whenever you're you're in action and doing stuff and you just need to kind of fill that in with the fiction around um what's happening so i I feel like it would run really well with people who who are new to games have you tried it with anyone who's who's a complete newbie not yet. Uh, I'll take it to Capcom this year and hopefully we'll get some new people in. But part of that came out of um, lockdown um, and trying to do a lot of games online. And, you know, a lot of the games I tend to run are kind of more story engagement. So everyone's kind of narrating over the top of each other. And so if, I wasn't really sure how that would work. I don't, it didn't do a lot of online games before uh, lockdown. So I thought, what would be a good way to do a game that you could easily do uh, online or, you know, over a video conference? And the idea was that if you gave people each a very clear uh, time to act and the ability to clearly resolve their movements in a very succinct way, uh, then, then this, that would be the kind of the idea of it. And when I thought about that idea that everyone kind of takes a turn in a very specific way, but that turn covers everything from sort of, you know, uh, interactions and combat, you know, wrestling through to kind of off-screen stuff, I thought wrestling is really that. Like if you look at the way a wrestling show works, each character kind of has their moment to do their thing and they keep trying to add bits into it to make it as interesting as possible until some other character comes in and the story shifts and everyone like looks at the new character. So it seemed to me there was a synergy between those two things. Yeah, I think, I think that's really smart. It really stood out to me as, as um, something that I haven't really seen anywhere else. The mechanic in the game where well, kind of the role of the dice in the game isn't to determine success or failure, but it's to determine whether you can you can keep doing stuff. You have the opportunity to keep making more moves and have more opportunity to sell yourself to the audience and achieve whatever goals you are. So kind of if, if there is a strategic level to the game, um, it's about what, what you're prioritizing, what's important to you and um, how you want to present yourself, what, who, 
who you want to um, piss off the most and the other people around the table, etc. Um, so I, I think that's like a really, a really savvy thing to put the uncertainty on the question of how long can you hold the, hold the center of stage, especially as you're saying, playing online. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. What other stuff did you, did you try online in the early days of lockdown? Cause I, I also didn't play much online at all until um, lockdown forced me to. <laughs> um, we played the other games. So I always had this idea about trying to carve out uh, time for people. One of the things I think that D&D got right, in my view, and obviously, you know, I'm not a big D&D player, but um, the idea that everyone has a time to do a thing and it's a very discrete time that's theirs and theirs alone. And I've played a lot of story games and a lot of other games where people don't always, not everyone responds to it in the same way. And I've, I've always reflected on the fact that people like having an equal amount of time and space to do what they want to do. And if they're not kind of um, naturally eloquent or people who like the story side, you don't want them to be disadvantaged because they're someone who's louder and more onto it in terms of that kind of a, a way of going. And as a, as a GM or a DM, you are naturally inclined to give more spotlight and microphone time to people who are more kind of outgoing and who are doing that kind of thing, or at least I am, I guess. Um, and so I've always respected the idea that you would have a discrete time that's your time to do a thing, no matter how you wanted to do it. And that's the thing I've tried to bet into almost all of my games. Mm. Um, and so when we came time to look for um, games that we could do online, we played Death of Legends um, and its sequel, which is another game I made a little while back, which is where you play kind of a fantasy character, like an epic fantasy, dark fantasy character who's grappling with your inner demons and trying to stave off a, a inevitable invasion that's kind of overwhelming the magical kingdom that you control. And that's another game that's really based around giving you some time to narrate what's happening, um, but then also building that into a mechanical sequence. So it's not just kind of open story time. You've got enough structure that you can kind of cling to if, if you're not naturally going to enjoy the story side of the game. Yeah, Death of Legends, another um, another really interesting design, and another um, GM-less game. We should have maybe mentioned somewhere along the way that Soaring Lions doesn't have a GM facilitator, although you can kind of have someone take those responsibilities if you want, but it's designed for everyone who sits down to play, to pick up a restaurant and be fully involved in things, and the structure will carry you through, just as with Death of Legends. Now, that's see, that's an interesting thing. Hearing you talk just now about um, the way different players approach the game i can hear echoing in there many conversations that we've had over the years um about the experiences that you've had kind of refining sitting down with people to run games in a in a convention situation and um your your first um rpg epoch is famously um, and among those people that know it is uh, not just a game but it's also kind of a thesis about what horror should be um what horror games are and how you present them so you uh, your reputation to me personally was as this trad game guy who really understood how to make this traditional game master runs the world players run their their kind of characters through this established scenario you you could do that like almost no one else call of cthulhu games um warhammer fantasy roleplay games those are those are these games that you are very very associated with in my head and then you kind of turned around and started producing these games that have a very very different feel to them and um and just completely nailing them as well so what what can you tell me about the journey that you took from when you were on on as we all were i guess in the 90s this very trad game diet 
and how you ended up maintaining those games, but also doing some really different stuff with your, with your personal game designs. Yeah. Well, thank you for those nice things that you said. Um, yeah, I, it is a journey for me. Um, I don't, I still like trade games and I still play plenty of trade games. So it's not like I've moved away from, from them in any sense. There's an extent to which I don't feel a particular need to design a simulationist style game because there are so many out there. And if I wanted one, I could, I could just take one. I do. I play, I play lots of um, trade games. Um, so I don't think I need to be in the design space there particularly. I think there's much more exciting opportunities elsewhere. But for me, it was in the con space. Um, when you take a group of people you've never met before and um, you bring them together for a couple of hours to play a game, um, that's when you really get to the heart, in my view, of what role-playing is and what role-playing is about. And Epoch was my first effort to try and say, if you're going to have this, this environment and you're going to be in a place where you can't, set the tone, you can't set the mood, you have to start from scratch with your kind of fundamental social contract with who these people are and what this game is going to be about. Um, how can you do horror in that space? Like it's a really challenging space to do horror. So if you can create a genuinely kind of horrific, you know, horror style game, that's actually going to have some kind of impact on the people playing it. What do you should, what would you have to do to make that work? And so Epoch is kind of my response to, to that question. But I'd say, what I learned in terms of making Epoch and um, playing Epoch and running Epoch, and I did that for a fair while, um, is just kind of the, the fundamental things that seem to work about people, how people interact with these games, which is partly one of the things, is giving people this kind of space and time to play a character. Um, Wicked Lies and Alibis, which came out of Epoch, which is my kind of detective fiction game, came out of the realization that in Epoch, I created it as a relatively traditional game where you have a scenario that you mm. put characters through but the players uh, in epoch would use the flashback mechanic to tell these amazing stories which were better than the scenarios and so playing a couple of those i thought man there's there's something really good happening here that you don't need a scenario for this what you do need is something to help those people tell those stories so they're not completely freeforming it or that if they're not confident freeforming it they've got some support to do it but that's a great thing and there should be a game that does that. And so detective fiction seemed like the kind of thing where you could, you could tell a story in abstract as a flashback that would effectively allow you to solve a murder in this particular case. And so each of my games has been ideally, I think, trying to take a learning that I've had through this experience and iterate that into something different and plug in a different genre and a different system to, to try and make it happen. Yeah. Well, it's it is really clear to me the through line of all of all of these games that you've designed that they they do, as you say, really um, provide clear opportunities for players to just just author so much of um, their character's personal story, but also like the the tone and experience of the game. And in um, in Wicked Lies and Alibis, which is kind of the, the Agatha, Agatha Christie style game, and it's I, have, I guess you can drift it to other formats, but that's that's certainly where it lives in my head. Um, like the whole, the whole of that game is just people kind of playing with that tone and establishing their, their creative inputs into it. And something really, really magical builds out of it. So um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really cool. So what have we covered now? We've, we've mentioned Epoch. Um, we've mentioned Wicked Lies and Alibis. We've mentioned Death of Legends and the Death of Legends sequel. So those are, those are your murder mystery, your fantasy, your horror. Um, and now you've got your wrestling game, and we've also skipped over another very recent release, which is coming in hot, which is your your entry into the heist genre. Um, yeah. It's that's a game that I ha I I 
purchased day one and haven't even read yet because <laughs> there's been a <laughs> lot going on. Um, so when I ask you to sum up coming in hot for me, I really don't know what's in those pages. So you're going to have to <laughs> have to tell me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I liked the idea that a group of people coming together to play a game, especially a group of relative strangers. So it comes back to that con idea. You're getting a bunch of people who don't necessarily know each other and you're coming together to do a thing, a very specific thing over, let's say three hours at a role playing convention or, you know, when you're sitting down to play with some friends, um, it felt to me like there was a, a parallel that could be had with kind of, um, heist games in terms of the modern fiction of how those tend to evolve. Um, you know, your baby driver or your whatever, your kind of modern day heist. And there are so many of these heist movies um, where you get these kind of disparate group of people who come together to do pull off a job. And, you know, you know, from heat to kind of, you know, the darker takes on that, they, they go, they really range from kind of Robin Hood stories to really kind of gritty crime stories. But in all of them, there is this kind of idea that you're bringing together people who have uh, struggled with their lives who are flawed characters and you're asking that they're, they're trying to overcome their personal demons in order to achieve a thing, uh, rob a bank or, you know, get away with something. Um, and so coming in hot was kind of that idea. And to, to take out that mechanic, I thought what, what says kind of high stakes without really knowing what's going on, what kind of system fits that really well. And it's got a, it's got a poker card kind of system. So you basically, you play uh, using playing cards with the idea that some suits, uh, uh, card suits, that is, uh, kind of your strengths, but you're equally offset because as a flawed person, for everything you're kind of good at is also something that kind of inhibits you. So some suits are kind of your weaknesses. And so for every, to pull off the job, you kind of all have to plan how you're going to pull off this job where we, your strengths and your weaknesses are going to be pitted against each other to try and achieve the outcome. And it all hopefully ends in some kind of a chase um, or you know, maybe get away clean. Uh, the options are all there on the table for the players. But that was the idea behind Coming in Hot. Also, um, you know, Coming in Hot was kind of my Christmas. I had a Christmas break and I thought, you know what, I'll make a game. And um, Soaring Lions was my lockdown. So I was like, well, we're going to be here for a little while. So maybe this is a good opportunity to write a game, a short game. <laughs> Well, um, they might be short, but they're very, um, they're very fully formed expressions of these ideas that you're, you're packing into pretty tight page counts. Um, it's, I mean, I suppose, I guess it's the, the uh, one shot nature that you're trying to, to generate this tight experience. So is Coming In Hot also a uh, GM-less game? Yeah, uh, yes. Um, you, you got me on the spot because I, <laughs> I haven't played it for a little while now. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's another GMless uh, game. Yep. Yeah. Um, but in both cases, the idea was that if you don't want to, um, if you if you prefer to have that role in a game, and um, you know, you talk about PDFs, and it's a true thing that people will just buy and download lots of PDFs. Um, I do it too, and you never get to them. But if you do get someone who's really passionate about the the game, mm. you want them to have the opportunity to not necessarily have the burden of um, facilitating it. So if you're running a GMless game, but you yeah. also don't, they don't have to necessarily participate. So what I try and do with these games is create a role for a facilitator. So um, in Wicked Lies and Alibis, there is a GM, but the GM kind of takes an NPC role as this kind of great detective who's there to solve a crime. Um, and in Coming in Hot, there's quite a, there's a clear uh, ability for someone to improve the way the game flows by just adding to the kind of contributions that the players are making and just supporting that story, and it's the same with Soaring Lions. Um, the stories are going to be, I think, compelling and interesting individually, but there is a real value in kind of weaving them together. And so, ideally, everyone's doing that anyway. But you know, perhaps that's um, if you're more used to kind of a traditional GMing role, 
there's a way to do that as well. You know, so at Capcom, if we get enough players, I won't play a wrestler. I'll I'll take a role as a, a kind of commentator and try and make suggestions to keep the stories flowing. I think that's um, that's a that's a really interesting role to build in because I speaking from personal experience, it's a role that I have really enjoyed many times in the past, particularly um, with story games. Uh, Mountain Witch comes to mind. Um, Kagematsu was uh, another one where I was I was um, in the game, but more of a facilitator. But oh, to take Mountain Witch, it does have a GM role, but the way that game runs is after kind of the first chunk of it, after you have all the pieces in play, it just starts running itself because so much of it is built on how the characters are playing off each other and against each other and building on each other's things. And I remember um, we ran a like a three-session game of it and I spent so much of that time in the later sessions just enjoying. Just I was like the, the audience have won for this amazing um, katana opera that was unfolding in front of me and it was, it was really fun. So um, building a game with that in mind, uh, understanding the joy that you can have from just facilitating as all this cool stuff is happening around you is um, I think, I think quite cool and something I haven't seen in, in many other designs really, where there's, there's a lot more burden that is thrown at people if they want to take on a more facilitatory role. Um, yeah. And I try and make games or my view is that a good, a good game, a good con game doesn't put too much burden on anyone. So um, some story games throw a lot at the players early on to come up with a lot of things all by themselves. And, your game experience can be largely dictated by that, how that first half hour goes where everyone's desperately trying to come up with ideas and riff off each other. Um, but that doesn't suit everyone. Not everyone is, wants to just spend a lot of um, mental brunt up front. And similarly, you know, to flip the coin the other side, trade games, um, if you play at a con, you are stepping into someone else's mind um, in a very strong way and they, mm. and they might reflect that very strongly. Especially if you're playing a system of, you know, you sign up for a very traditional game and they'll tell you what class you are and kind of some ideas about hit points and setting. And, you know, they would expect you to be able to buy into that. And um, that puts a lot of load on them and their ability to tell that story. Um, and again, you get a really strong vibe from how, how much effort they put in that first half hour to make it live for you as an experience as opposed to just run it as a mechanical kind of um, engagement. Um, so I don't know. I think good games, in my view, good games should should lift as much of the load as possible off everyone if there's some way to do that. And that's the thing I really respect about the Apocalypse World games is they do a pretty good job of lifting a bunch of that load and helping the players uh, generate those things together in a way that creates a neat intro to a story. Yeah. So your game design seemed to be um, arising from kind of this, this first principles development of what you're observing up close in the convention environment. Um, you've, you're a very um, regular fixture of the uh, local Wellington convention, Capcom, and have been for a, a long time. Conventions are obviously pretty important to um, the, your engagement with role-playing games. Tell me, tell me about it. Tell me about conventions and why they matter, because for a lot of people, they've, they've never gone to a con. Why would they? Yeah, um, it's fair. Um, and it can be... So I think cons are the best and the worst in my view of role-playing and a lot can ride on how much, how good your experiences are. I've lost count of how many people who have gone to cons and not had the best experience and that kind of means that they don't ever want to come back because they can, they can three hours with something that you're really not enjoying is a really bad time. Um, but I would say um, they're also like a hotbed of 
experiences and sharing and getting ideas off people. So a great con game can really lift you in a way that um, you don't expect. And what the best con experiences I've had have been when I've gone and played something I had no idea about and was interested in maybe just on the periphery. Sometimes I've even just been put into games randomly rather than necessarily signing up to play them. But they turn out to be amazing or even just thought-provoking. Um, there's usually some really good essence in almost every con offering I've ever played um, in terms of something you can take away from the experience. Is there, is there one example that leaps to mind? Oh, over the years? Um, well, the first couple of Apocalypse World games I played were really, um, were really kind of powerful and interesting. And it was interesting to see um, playing Apocalypse World kind of as a pure form as a road warrior style game. I remember Mike Sands, I think it was, ran a game, um, which was just pure um, apocalypse world um, in that space. And then uh, taking my take on road warriors and just throwing that into a, like a, a cement mixer of everyone else's different take on how that works. And then seeing how a system manifests was really interesting. But um, Mountain Witch, when I played Mountain Witch, um, the idea of the trust mechanic and the idea of um, the, the way the characters evolved across sequences all these were hugely influential to me in terms of what I thought were really great innovations. But until you play a game, you don't really get a sense of how it all comes together. And so a con is a great place to go and try something different um, if you haven't tried it before and get a real sense of it because you can read it. Um, but unless the author's done a really fantastic job of making come alive, and I'm sure I have, but, you know, let's be honest, not everyone is going gonna, is gonna to spend all that time reading those PDFs that they've downloaded. Uh, the con is the way to make it live for you. And I think the really successful con games, like when you see something like Apocalypse World or Dungeon World, just grow a life of its own in a con community, it's because everyone like plays it and is like, oh my God, this is a really great time. Um, there's so many other things I can think of to do with this. And then you see, you know, in the next con, there are like three or four of those different games on offer. Um, so people have taken their own take on it, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, local convention Capcon is... Um it's a it's an interesting con. It gets kind of a hundred, hundred and fifty ish people along, and uh, the the indie game scene has been pretty well represented over the last fifteen years or so. There's there's a lot of that stuff going on. There's always a reasonable number of of the more trade games in there as well, and there's also, as I understand it, quite a unique streak of um kind of systemless games that i there's not so many of those these days there, there's kind of a a little um mike foster always um runs a systemless game or two but um i remember for a long long time capcom just seemed to have heaps of games where people wouldn't have any kind of system to speak of they would just have a concept and you would sit down and you would you would explore this concept with them and they'd have some random um, roller D6 to do this and we'll just interpret it together. Um, so it's, it feels like a really unique environment for playing with system and playing with expectation. Um, I don't know if there's a question at the end of this. It's just a, a reflection on how Capcom was a different experience to me. It didn't prepare me for conventions that I've been to in other parts of the world where um, the mix of games was was very different, I think, to what we experienced here in Wellington. Um, yeah, have, yeah. My two cents worth on it is um, if the rise of LARPs has kind of replaced um, that systemless, um, not all, not all of it, obviously, but a chunk of that systemless thing. And for me, I wrote a thing on it some years back now. But um, when I went to Australia, I played a lot of um, what they what it seems to be big in a lot of the cons there is freeform games, 
And it's the same idea, the idea that you, you don't need a system per se. And what I, so what I think my experience here is that people had a negative reaction to some of the really trad games and the way that they uh, weren't a great experience for people and people felt constrained perhaps by a complex system that's not really designed for a three-hour outing with a bunch of people you just met who have never read the rule book before. And so the response to that was these kind of games. And I feel like when people in the Wellington community weren't necessarily getting what they wanted out of um, traditional games, where you sat around a table, they said, you know what, let's move this to LARP. And there's no real constraint there. Plus we get the added benefits of kind of costuming and um, it's not all in one person. You know, even those early Capcom games are still in one person's head. So people weren't really getting the opportunity to tell the story as well. Um, not many of those games were big on that. I mean, they're better now, especially if you're using an indie game. But um, I think LARP is the response to that, which is people saying, I will take accountability for my own fun because I, you know, I've had a negative experience trying to fit into someone else's fun when it hasn't gelled for me. Um, so I think that's the evolution. I don't know where that goes next. Um, you know, two freeform can be a bit out there. And I, sometimes I think people str struggle with that being too open or too much accountability or not enough connectiveness. Um, when you're taking that responsibility for your own fun. So, but, you know, I'm not a big lapper, so I'm not necessarily the best person to talk about it. So, um, dial, dial us back a little bit, Dale. Tell me, uh, tell me, I don't think I've ever asked you this before. How did you get into games in the first place? Like, what's your origin story of role-playing? Uh, would be uh, school, high school, no, uh, primary school, uh, playing uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was um, very big there uh, in the in the early nineties uh, or thereabouts. Um, yeah, I think that was where I first played it. But I also played with a bunch of really creative people who um, were exploring other games. So we never really played things like D and D. Um, we did play Call of Cthulhu, so obviously that had a fairly big impression on me at a relatively young age. Um, but I remember there was also a guy who made this amazing kind of quasi board game role playing game out of 300 sheets of A4 paper and he just made this map, this amazing map that you could just wander across with your playing counter and encounter things. So it was kind of a, a fantasy game, um, but it was all out of his own head. And so um, coming out of all of that, I guess I kind of got introduced to uh, traditional role playing as I would have it. But like I said, I never really went the D&D path. It was never a thing for me until kind of later on in my role playing time. Um, yeah. How did you find yourself kind of behind behind the GM screen, so to speak? When did you start running games and taking that responsibility? Uh, Call of Cthulhu was my first go at it, and that was after having had an absolutely fantastic uh, uh, keeper in the form of Christian Gilman, who you probably know, um, who's just top-notch um, Call of Cthulhu keeper. And I finally kind of got up the courage. I, for a long time, I thought, you know, I can't, I can't do it as good as Christian can because um, he just knows his stuff um, so well. Um, but I was inspired to try something in Wellington. I made a game, uh, like a scenario, uh, for Call of Cthulhu um, based around the old Wellington Museum at Buckle Street. That was my first kind of foray into it. And at that time, we were going through, I guess, university, um, early years of university, and um, groups were changing, groups were shifting. And so I kind of found a new group of people to play with and they didn't have a natural person who was running the game. So I, I was happy to have a crack at it and it turned out to be something I quite liked. Um, I guess I had run a few games before that, a long time before at Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay first edition way back in the day, but that was when we were all kind of taking turns at running games. So yeah, um, 
I guess it just seemed like a cool thing to do. And um, if you think you've got a story inside you and it's a good place to tell it, um, and, you know, there's kind of a craft to it. But I guess I wouldn't say I started really learning a heap until I started going to Capcom early on and um, having those having those experiences with people which really just shook up my kind of preconceptions of what people want to do around a gaming table. Yeah. So, um, gosh, there's kind of two directions that I, I want to go. Um, one of the directions is that the this kind of um, experience that you started having around these, these one-shot con games and refining them and taking lessons out of them, um, that's, a, that's obviously been something that you've thought a lot about. But the other big chunk of your gaming, as it seems to me from my, um, my times playing with you and observing um, what you are doing, is the other extreme from a one-shot game where you have a habit of taking on the enormous big campaigns in, uh, in, in the industry. So you've done um, the, the big Call of Cthulhu campaigns, some of them more than once, I believe. And um, you've kind of been refining your approach to them. You, you wrote this amazing series of uh, blog posts about the horror, horror of the horror on the Orient Express um, campaign, kind of uh, deconstructing each chapter and giving advice to other people that might want to want to run it. So, like two very very different ways of running games, running the biggest stuff um, that there is versus these these very tight compact things. Do they strike you as very different when you sit down to run them, or is there kind of a common ground that you you bring to it from the kinds of thinking that you've been doing and developing other games? So how do they relate to each other within this hobby? Um, I think um, the big con games, I mean, I run them, I don't know if it's a common experience for people, but you kind of run them with a group of people you play with regularly. And so the pressure on you to innovate um, or do things differently as you might in a con game or to balance to balance the kind of um, getting to know people in the space of a role-playing game is much less because you already know the people. And that lets you go deeper. You know their comfort levels relatively. Uh, you know the, what, what they're interested in. You know the kinds of things that will appeal to them. So you can go much deeper in terms of a story for a character. Um, and that's why I like running those kind of big games. I also quite enjoy um, experiencing it with the players. So if you get a pre-written campaign, um, my take on it is you run it as written, more or less, which is... Mm why I provide that narration on um, the Orient Express, um, which means we get to see how those ideas that the person putting it together um, who wrote it play out. And you can really tell parts that have been well playtested where they've had a bunch of uh, people through it versus those really kind of, they had a great idea, a great concept, but maybe didn't run it with enough diverse groups so that it would actually work for everyone. And so I try and as much as possible take the load off myself for writing those con games and try and run them as as written so I'm not holding the story load. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I like to innovate and put my own stories into it. But more or less, I try and make it a shared experience so that afterwards we can reflect and review the campaign or each part of the campaign as a collective rather than, um, you know, as an experience that I've delivered to someone. It's more like we've gone through it as a group which means I can take more of a role in um, playing against the characters as kind of the bad guys, but also supporting them um, in terms of their development. What I took out of that, I guess what I've reflected on is um, just the value of those preconceptions that people bring. Um, A big part of my review of 
what really set behind my review of horror on the Orient Express was how those trade games had evolved in terms of meeting what players expect um, coming up. Um, and a lot of them have come a distance, like they've come kind of acknowledged that um, the way it worked where it was all in one person's head and the way they interpreted it was a huge component of the game experience. So players were really disempowered um, mm. when they sat around the table. They had their, their turn, their initiative round, which obviously I talked good things about recently, but um, it was a, it's a relatively constrained experience. And so you lose track of how many people you've heard have had really bad experiences, particularly with something like uh, Call of Cthulhu, which if you've come from playing D&D or something like that, you suddenly play a game of Call of Cthulhu or a campaign and you get your character is killed or something really bad happens to them early on. That can be a shock. It's not welcome. And you don't necessarily feel like you have that kind of authority over your character, over the story. You're, you're, it's being done to you. It's not necessarily something you're a part of. And so I guess my evolution in that space has been seeing how you empower characters and players, how you empower the players to influence the system and um, have a greater role in it. Because the more role they take, the more collective ownership they buy of the game experience, which means the better it will be for everyone, um, ideally, as opposed to someone who will just sit out and you know just take whatever they want out of it. And so what I try and make for my games is games where you try and engage the people as thoroughly and fully as possible. Mm. Um, noting that everyone's different and not everyone wants to be fully engaged in the game sometimes. Um, but yeah, I guess that's how I'd see them coming together. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of that sounds, um, sounds very close to the uh, comments that you put in Epoch about um, making horror games function and the kind of the special um, requirements for player engagement and player buy-in that you need to make horror function um, to, its, to its potential in a game environment. Um, you, you have sunk a lot of energy into horror gaming. You... Um, ran the Fright Night convention, um, which was a special horror gaming convention that ran in Wellington for a bunch of years before um, it kind of disappeared under the weight of all the LARP stuff that was going on. Um, yeah, is, is kind of horror, horror still a um, focus of interest for you? Do you, do you think there's, there's new stuff to be mined in the, in the horror genre? There's so many different horror games out there now. Um, are you still excited to try new things there or do you, do you, feel like the energy is um, better spent exploring in different directions like wrestlers and heists? <laughs> um, well, for me, it's about, um, it's about the idea and the experience. And so there's always new stuff to be had out of it. So the reason I particularly love horror games is, is because of largely because of horror movies, because you watch the start of those movies. And what I really love is they almost all jump from reality to fantasy at some point in their in the in their arc and the way that they set up that jump and the way that they bring the audience to the characters because that's essential because if you don't care about the characters then who cares what happens to them down the road and then you do the jump and that is always fresh to me and whenever i watch a horror movie i find myself thinking man i could do a great scenario for this or what, is there a is there a deeper game that you could run off this you know like I, my epoch is kind of my generic I think you could do almost any kind of horror situation with it. But then when you watch some horror movies that are quite specific, um, you start thinking, well, like you watch a deep a psychological horror or a real thriller and you think, man, there's a whole other thing happening here. I wonder if there's a way you could write a game, a one-shot game that could really get at the essence of this. So I guess the short answer is no, as long as I keep um, thinking there's things to be had out of it, I'll keep trying to find ways to 
write that or bring it to the table in some way, shape or form. Cool. Well, speaking of what you've got coming up, maybe maybe we should wind up by talking very briefly about uh, in the back of Soaring Lions, you have mentioned an upcoming game. So um, do you want to quickly give us the concept of that one so we can look forward to its eventual appearance? Yeah. Um, so that's um, Instruments of the Chrysanthemum Throne, um, which is um, a game about um, items, really. Um, the idea in Japanese um, mythology that an item becomes sentient after 99 years. Not all items, but some items, special items, become sentient and they kind of have their own mind about things. And it was born, in my understanding, as kind of out of um, a relatively um, uh, difficult time in life where you really treasured possessions that you had to the extent where you handed them down through generations, you know, hard hard times in kind of feudal Japan. And so you really looked after things. And so sometimes people would have misfortune and they'd attribute it to, uh, to these items. And so the game is really about taking that a step further in kind of a mythology kind of fantasy setting and saying, what if there were these items and what if there were some really malignant items that had, had like this horrific, terrible past? Um, and they were so bad that the emperor had kind of locked them up because, you know, they were obviously just vicious evil things that when people used them, really bad things happened. But then um, something's happened in Japan. Japan's in crisis. The, the land is in turmoil. Um, the elements are out of their kind of natural sequence. And so uh, the emperor's last recourse to try and combat this problem is to get some, a group of people to take these, uh, these items and unleash them in the hope that somehow... Uh, setting one power against another might in some way resolve uh, the situation. And so it's a last desperate gambit by the, by the emperor to try and restore things. Um, and so in its essence, it's a game about um, a player with, a, with an item that's perpetually tempting them uh, to do things differently uh, and to, to take kind of that step into the darkness. Um, and that's the tension I'm trying to bring to the table with that particular game. Uh, and it's more traditional. It's much more of a traditional game. There's a GM and players, so it's designed to be, uh, I think it's seven stories, maybe nine stories across Japan as you basically try and restore the balance. So it's got sort of nine specific scenarios that you play through, each of them with kind of rooted in different traditional uh, monsters or mythology of Japan uh, where you kind of confront these things. And each time you're kind of making a challenge, a question of yourself as to how much of yourself are you willing to give up uh, to this thing in order to overcome a challenge. So that's kind of the essence of the game. And I paste it over it um, in terms of a system. You know, I like to take a system that's kind of innovative. I've got a system that's about lucky numbers and a system that's based on a kind of a traditional gambling game where you have to kind of guess what you're going to roll and put those two together in a way that seems to work pretty well to be a bit innovative and bring a bit of that kind of cultural side to the table. Awesome. All right. So, Dale, um, it's been great to talk to you. If people are wanting to find Soaring Lions or any of your other games, where do they go and what do they look for? I understand there's free versions of uh, a bunch of your stuff. Yeah, uh, it's free versions. So Drive Through RPG is the standard place to go and just look for Imaginary Empire. Uh, that's my, my, my company name um, for games. And you'll find a big list of games, including free versions of a lot of these games. Uh, or you can go to imaginaryempiregamesoneword.com and um, there's a web page there, a pretty simple one, which will tell you about our games, my games, and uh, let you take you to drive through to purchase them. A great pleasure. Thanks, Dale. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Diceratops Presents. As always, we'd love to hear your questions and contributions. Remember to grab your tickets for the live show if you're in Wellington. 
please rate and review. Please tell a friend about us. Spread the word. Our theme music is The Sunday Song by the K1500 Project. Check out their music. Link in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to Dale's games. Do check them out. The free ones are right there waiting for you. Find us on all the socials at NZ. Let the good dice roll.